Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Is the pandemic over? I don't think so. Masks are becoming fashionable again. Dr. Kinderchuk joins me and answers your questions and always dispels the myths. Also talking about a new app that is going to help you figure out whether your medication is covered by one of the public health funds. We're also talking about uh, a woman's life, her new life, her life with sobriety now. And it's an inspiring story. Madeline Shaw joins me. And many people suffer with A, B, C, and D. Do you know what that is? Well, you might want to tune in and learn from Gail Atara, the president and CEO of Gastrointestinal Society. I'm Maureen McGrath, and the Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is an assistant professor, the Department of Medical Microbiology, and a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Re-Emerging Viruses. He's also an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry, College of Medicine and Allied Health Services, University of Sierra Leone. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Listen, in, in response to me being on for an hour, I'm just going to automatically save your audience. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> you guys have to bear with me for, for twice as long tonight. This is a scientist with a sense of humor. If you follow him on Twitter, you will see that. <laughs> um, and it it gets your... me through the dark times. <laughs> and hey, I, I know I get it. <laughs> um, if you can't laugh, what can you do? Um, exactly. I read your article in Forbes magazine. Um, tonight that you posted on Twitter. Very interesting article, um, but then, you know, no no bats were harmed during the production of this. Or <laughs> yes, not, not anyway. funded by Big Bat. So. Not funded. That was it. That was it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do any of us get any funding for this work that we do? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Honestly. You know, it, it's funny, though, right? Like, I mean, that, I, I posted it because that was, that was two years ago. Uh, there's, I think it's on April 17th that we actually uh, that we got it posted. But I remember, you know, sitting beside the uh, the, the much more esteemed uh, Dr. Peter Chuck and, and putting this together and saying, "Hi, you know, I, I don't know how controversial this is going to be and, and what the the response is going to be." Um, it, it, you know, it's kind of like we we got to get ahead of this. Um, certainly, there was the conspiracy theories were, were starting about um, you know this being an engineered virus and that this was a new bioweapon. And we were hearing all this chatter coming out, and there wasn't a lot of context about. Listen, this is what viruses do. Uh, it is certainly, you know, we, we, it shouldn't be unexpected um, that, that viruses spill over. We, we've seen lots of this. Um, we've got to talk about the, the nuance and the context behind this. Um, but it was also the sense of saying, like, are we too early in, in putting this out? Because, I, you know, there was that feeling of people looking for an immediate uh, finger to point at, at what was to blame. Um it's funny, you know, two years later, I, I, in, I think I, that there's been some clarity in, in what's happened. Um, but, but certainly, uh, there is still that, that real kind of feeling of we, we need to know today exactly what happened. And, and I think, you know, a good example is looking, so the, this past week, a, you know, different virus, but, um, there's a virus called Yovio virus and Yovio belongs to the same family of viruses as Ebola and Marburg, so it's a helivirus. Well, 
they identified and isolated uh, Yovio virus from bats in Hungary. When we, this is wow. astonishing, right? It's very important. But what we have to appreciate is that in 40-plus years, 46 years now, we have still not been able to isolate infectious Ebola virus from a bat. Now, 99% of all the data we have suggests that bats are the reservoir. Um, but we don't have that finite piece. So when we talk about SARS-CoV-2, we have to appreciate is that these investigations, these surveillance studies uh, of trying to identify viruses in the wild, this doesn't take weeks or months. This often takes decades of time. So we're, we're moving forward. But listen, if anybody thinks that by, you know, the end of 2022, we're going to have a definitive answer, man, it's, there, there are a lot of other things, uh, you know, you, you should be trying to, to, to find, uh, to, to keep yourself occupied because it, it's not, it, the likelihood is it's not going to happen. And if it does, it's probably going to be through a chance event. And, and it'd be great if we did, but um, the, these things just take so long. Uh, they, they certainly do. I mean, and it's painstaking research, which is what kills me about a lot of people who make these claims or these conspiracy theories about CoV uh, two, CoV uh, SARS two, and um, you know they really don't know what they're talking about. Um, I, I know somebody who's actually lost a job because although they were vaccinated, they didn't get boosted, and and their place of employment requires a booster. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure. Sometimes I don't want to get into it with people. But, you know, people have all these false beliefs. But as you say, I mean, this could be decades away. Um, But two years on, you know, here we are. Uh, Is the pandemic over? (laughs) (laughs) It's not over, right? I mean, listen, I think that we just need to look back at what Dr. Teresa Cam had, had said earlier this week and talked about surveillance ongoing in the country. Listen, there's a lot of areas, including my province, where we have zero concept of, of what's going on in regards to transmission in the community. We have some wastewater surveillance data that gives us a bit of a picture. Um, but what we should appreciate is that uh, when we look at certainly places like Ontario, other places that are releasing data, uh, what we're seeing right now is not completely unexpected. We remove all precautionary measures. We remove restrictions, we see transmission goes up. And by the way, there's also another, uh, you know, subvariant with BA2 that's more transmissible than BA1, and that, of course, is, is making its way in. It's a more fit variant. Um, it's going to push BA1 out. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to expose, uh, you know, more of those communities that, that have not been vaccinated or who, who don't have protection, and, and we're going to see what we see. Now, the size of the wave, we don't know yet. Um you know, we, we get some indications certainly from Europe, what they've seen. The U.S. has given us some indications. I think a lot of it's going to be um, trying to figure out what is the best marker. If you wait for hospitalizations to increase, uh, transmission's already been, you know, been, been increasing, uh, you know, behind that um, in, in the community. So now you're already, you know, you have a few steps behind in getting control of things. Getting back to reintroduction of mandates or, or masking mandates or distancing mandates, that's going to be tough to get buy-in in the community. So a lot of it right now is we need to just get information out to people. So when we talk about um, the individual behavior aspects and, and some of the precautionary things people can be doing uh, as individuals, they at the very least have that data to be able to uh, to, to have some context um, you know, to, to provide uh, for, for them for those decisions. It's it's tough. It's tough right now with, 
you know, not having, um, you know, uh, testing being available. Certainly here in Manitoba, we're, mm-hmm. we're moving away from having testing clinics as of April 15th. Well, you have a virus that disproportionately affects vulnerable communities. Um, now you take away those testing options and, and rapid antigen, uh, you know, testing uh, accessibility and, and remove those things. Well, you put a disproportionate burden on a community that's already disproportionately burdened by this disease. And, and that's when we talk about the inequities in, in communities, this is what we're getting at, that we, we can't think uh, about everything being spread equally across every aspect of, of our community in Canada. It's, it's very, very different. So th- these are all the things that, that take me back to saying, listen, we're not through this yet. I'm more optimistic than I was you know, last year at this time, certainly, and even probably a few months ago. Um, but I, there's some consternation with that. I think that we, we've got to be prepared um, for the ebbs and flows that are going to come with with going back to some amount of normalcy in our lives again. We, we certainly do, and, you know, you make so many great points there. Um, if you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is one 877 That's one 877 Call or text the program. I do have a text here for you, um, Dr. Kinderchuk, and I didn't know this, and maybe it's not even true. <laughs> Why is graphene used in COVID vaccines? This is what many anti-vaxxers build their conspiracy theories on. Is graphene uh, used in COVID vaccines? Not that I've ever seen on any of the ingredients, and I know that there's been a lot of discussion about this whole uh, this whole concept of graphene being used, and, and whether or not this was, you know, so there, there was some other aspect of toxicity that was being treated. This I, I haven't seen anything, certainly for, uh, for for the mRNA vaccines or the vaccines that, that are authorized in Canada to provide any substance for that. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. He actually studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. We do have a caller on the line, Mary from Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Hello, Mary. Well, I heard Dr. Kinderchuk say, uh, I believe, uh, an Ebola-related virus they, they think is coming from bats. And I just wondered with this current virus and so on and the possible link to bats, although I heard you say we, we don't know, but what makes bats such a great host for this virus, for these viruses? Oh, that's a great question, Mary. And, and actually, and, and I laugh because that honestly, um, it, it is because it's, it's very complex. Uh, certainly it's something that, uh, that, that we talk about in, uh, in, in my lectures, uh, quite often and something we're, we're working on in my lab. So there's a few things, right? I mean, one is that when we look across different, uh, different animals and specifically different mammals, um, our immune systems are very, very different, right? So there, there are certainly things across, uh, across different mammals, uh, in our immune system that, that are redundant, that are very similar. There are things that are different. One of the things we see with bats, certainly, is that their behavior, their immune system behavior in regards to different uh, pathogens is very, very different. What we can see, so if you look at things like rabies virus, we look at Nipah virus, Hendra virus, the, the different Ebola viruses, coronaviruses, um, what, what they're able to do is, is basically have this, I don't want to say symbiotic relationship, but it's almost, uh, a, a, we get a persistence, right? So the virus gets in, um, the immune system in the bats is enough to keep it at bay so that it doesn't cause disease, the animals don't get sick, but it's not enough to eliminate it. Um, and what ends up happening is that as bats uh, migrate around, they also uh, they also have very very different um, uh, I guess ways that their bodies react to temperature changes. Um, that allows them to to see different stressors in the community, and that will sometimes 
precipitate a change in how viruses replicate, so then they get released. All of it is to basically say bats are very unique, and that's what makes them such good hosts for these different viruses. So when we talk about bats as, you know, as being likely reservoirs, it's not because we're just saying, well, it probably is because people have said this about other viruses. It's in fact, because bats are very, very good at this. And when we look at RNA viruses in particular, um, this continues to be over and over again the same story that, that we see with bats. And, and we can't call great answer. We can't call the um, bats either because that will affect the food supply. I learned that from your Forbes article. <laughs> and I have a right. Yeah, but, but if I they were more like, like that, oh. oh. Go ahead, Mary. I was going to say, if we were more like bats and we had the virus but we didn't get sick with it, then it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, well, and that's the thing, that we do have different viruses that we uh, that we interact with on, on a daily basis or, or, you know, at least in, during times in our lives where we actually behave like bats, right? So part of this is that the, the complexity of viruses in our, in our community and certainly in, in, you know, our global community is much more complex and much more diverse. And I think we realize it's not, you know, kind of a handful of viruses. It's actually unbelievable amounts of viruses that, that we encounter. And I think we're just getting to a point of understanding this. Okay, thank you. Fascinating. Mary, thank you so much. I have Bruce on the line from Vancouver, British Columbia. Good evening, Bruce. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, I was just curious, the doctor referred to um, graphene not being on the list of ingredients. I've been looking for that list of ingredients. Is that something he can share? Yeah. So which which vaccine are you looking for? Pfizer, uh, Moderna, J&J, uh, AstraZeneca? Well, well, in particular, I was curious about the J&J. Yeah. So, so any of the vaccines that are uh, authorized or that are licensed, uh, those ingredients are fully available publicly. So I'm looking at... The uh, the Politifact uh, article on uh, on that claim. Uh, this was the uh, Jeremy Sladen, I believe, that was in the video from Facebook. Uh, so if you go through, uh, what they do is that they actually have links to the full approvals for the vaccines, um, as well as descriptions of where to be able to get that information from. Dr. Jason Kindershark, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. This was fun. <laughs> hey, thanks, Maureen. Very much enjoyed it. As part of its commitment to the more than 8 million caregivers across Canada, Teva Canada has been looking at ways for Canadians to explore a brighter future for healthcare. How can care be reimagined for the betterment of patients and caregivers at all stages of life? To move the conversation forward throughout the months of April and May, they've started a dialogue of shared experiences from some of Canada's brightest minds, caregivers, patients, and healthcare professionals, to create a new prescription for care. They've developed a fabulous five-part podcast series where notable healthcare thought leaders are sharing their views on what a new prescription for care would look like. The host, Mark Stolo, is CEO of People Before Patients, a movement that invites everyone to engage in healthcare reform. Here's a clip from episode one as he discusses the concept of caring for the whole person with Scott Swanson a caregiver from British Columbia who's been a carer for both his daughter and his aging parents with medical needs. Scott reflects on how much it meant for him to collaborate with healthcare professionals who truly showed up for him. 
he shares how empowering it was to be treated like a whole person. What's caregiving like for people who are unfamiliar with the role? It's exhausting. It takes up a tremendous amount of time, which for most people who thought they already had busy lives now have to figure out how to add one more thing in. It is emotionally exhausting because depending on the kind of disease that the person you're caring for has, you may be dealing with all of the anticipatory grief. So for example, most of my caregiving was with my both my parents who were dying. And then there's juggling the time. So if you are uh, working, if you have your own children, all that time as well as the uh, just emotional and, and mental energy that it takes. We've talked in the past about your own personal experience with burnout. How much did this experience of caring for your parents contribute to that? What finally pushed me over the edge was uh, mom's getting diagnosed with a with brain a brain tumor. And I was fortunate; I had very understanding employers who, you know, gave me the space and time that I needed to do what I needed to do. And after mom died, that was that was it. I was I was down, and I was off work for about three four months after that. If you had the power to redesign a dimension of this healthcare experience. What do you think is one area of healthcare that really needs to be looked at differently, um, expanded on? One thing that I experienced both then and more recently with both of my parents in, in Washington State was the degree to which professionals, doctors, social workers, were willing to take just a little bit of time to take my questions seriously, give me thoughtful answers, give me the information explain the options uh, because for mom and dad in particular I was I was making their decisions in my setting as a congregational minister I would use the word sacramental I think it is it's the essence of of the human connection it is the the desire at the level of our soul to be in relationship with one another whether that is, going out for beer after a volleyball game with your buddies, or whether that's sitting in a family meeting with a healthcare professional who is outlining options for your loved one. I think those kinds of core human encounters with life, with other human beings, I think those kinds of connections are at the very essence of of what we're about. You can find a new podcast episode every Tuesday between April 5th and May 3rd. In addition, Teva Canada wants you to be a part of the conversation. They want your ideas, big and small, that would support caregivers and change the way we view and deliver healthcare in Canada. Check out their Prescription for Care survey at www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In 10 minutes, you can have a say in the kind of health and care you'd like to see in the future. You're also invited to a special live virtual panel event on May 10th that brings our podcast experts together along with keynote speaker and former TSN host Michael Landsberg, who is a fierce mental health advocate and caregiver. It promises to be an intriguing look at how health and wellness experts envision a more evolved healthcare system. Again, to listen to the podcast, participate in the survey, or register for the free event, visit www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. 
That's www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. The road to diagnosis is hard enough, but understanding if your medication has coverage by federal, provincial, or territorial public drug plans should be easier. And guess what? It is. Joining me on the line is Rachel Mannion. She is the executive director of the Canadian Skin Patient Alliance, and she is going to talk to us about the launching of a new tool called Is My Prescription Covered? Good evening, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Maureen. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here tonight. Oh, it's delightful to have you. So uh, this is such a challenging issue for so many people, especially people who are managing multiple medications and also making decisions about whether or not they can afford medications and maybe actually even triaging some of their medications to take the ones that are most important. I mean, those are some of the realities out there that I hear from my patients anyway. And and I have many patients who, because it's not covered, they're not going to use the medication or take the medication. So tell me about, is my prescription covered? What exactly it is? I understand it's a, I understand it's a digital tool. Um, and so tell me about this, why it was developed and why it's important. <laughs> Well, you're absolutely right, Maureen. It's not easy to figure out whether your prescription is covered. We know pharmacists do a lot of heavy lifting when you're standing there at the counter uh, trying to figure out what your best plan forward is. Um, But by the time you've gone through your road to diagnosis and and you've worked out with your physician what the optimal treatment plan is for you, it really should be easier for people to access the drugs that they are needing in order to, uh, to be healthier. And so what we at the CSPA did is we put together, we stitched together all of the different rules that the public drug plans have. And you mentioned that they were the federal, the provincial, and the territorial health plans, um, or rather drug plans. And we put it all together in an interactive tool on our website so that people only have to answer yes or no questions. And this tool will guide them to a public plan that they are eligible for or that they're, they're already part of, and it will point them to um, the right place so that they can look up that drug that they're holding a prescription for and figure out if it's covered for them. Which is excellent. It helps with budgeting. It helps with budgeting. It helps with uh, their care. Um, I just want to mention that the CSPA is an organization for people affected by skin condition, skin conditions, but this drug coverage finder is designed so that anyone in Canada with any health condition can check to see if they're eligible for coverage. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And we know for many skin patients, uh, they tend to not always just have one condition that they are, that they're working with. And uh, there are a lot of different comorbidities. People can have comorbidities that affect the gastrointestinal system that affect their joints and their bones. um, And they can also be living with different viruses. Uh, so there's, there's sort of no, no end to the different kinds of comorbidities that we see in people who ha- live with hair, skin, or nail conditions. And so what we did here is we, we looked at all of the different public plans and we put them all together so that if you, are, if you have a question for, about yourself, about a family member or a friend, uh, you can 
go on the website, that's canadianskin.ca, you can find the tool, Is My Prescription Covered?, and the tool will walk you through a bunch of different questions in order to point you to something that might be helpful for you. Um, and it, it, as you mentioned, Maureen, we really focus on the public drug plans because um, even though there are dozens of those in the country, what, um, what we do know about private plans is that in Canada, we have over 100,000 of them. And of course, they don't um, necessarily have a searchable formulary. So we weren't able to take the same approach with private plans, but we do also offer some guidance and sort of some prompting questions for people um, where they might be able to look for private coverage that they wouldn't otherwise have, have, already, have already searched for. So sometimes people are a member of a union and the union will offer some kind of a health benefits program that includes drug coverage. Sometimes people are part of a professional association or they're alumni of a university or college, and sometimes there's some some private, uh, sort of like a, an offering for private coverage through that connection as well. So what we did is we put together a series of prompts to, to help people find something if in the end, the public drug plan isn't gonna cover what it is that they need to have covered. That's amazing because province to province as well, uh, medications are not necessarily covered equally. That's absolutely right. Every province or every jurisdiction, I should say, is really, really different. And uh, while there are some of the bigger provinces, BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec, that tend to offer, uh, they tend to have more things on their formulary, they're not identical either. There's a lot of variation across this country. And you can have, you know, siblings even that are living with the same condition. Um, and one, based on where they live in Canada, will be able to access um, their treatment and another won't. So, you know, it can, it can really um, affect people's different, the, the options that they have. And it's only really when you, when you're able to sort of walk through all of the different pieces of it that you can kind of figure out if you have any opportunities for coverage. Um, we know though, Maureen, that at the end of the day, um, there is a lot that's not covered for patients. And this tool unfortunately doesn't fix that. But what it does is it sets people up with the best information possible so that they can make the most informed choice. And, and, and again, look at other options if, if they do have some that they didn't realize were open to them. Right. And, and I would imagine that improving affordable and timely access to effective medications uh, helps people uh, to actually get healthier, get the treatment that they need, get back to work, get back to their lives, their relationships. And, and I can see that this tool would do that. Would um, Is my assumption correct? Yeah, that's what we hope it, it will do, Maureen. Uh, we know that in, in Canada, it, it can be a bit of a wild ride trying to figure out um, how, to, how to really care for your health. And uh, this is a real opportunity to, to also sort of showcase what some of those differences are. I know we've heard a lot about National Pharmacare, um, we didn't really have too much in the federal budget last week on National Pharmacare, but that's definitely been a subject of conversation for many years now. And uh, it's really important, I think, as we're all having this sort of conversation across the country, that we actually understand what is available to us. Um, there are all kinds of different um, approaches, but at the end of the day, if we aren't all talking about the same thing when we're having a conversation about National Pharmacare, we're probably not all going to end up in the place that we think we're, that we, where we think we're headed. And uh, that can be a real limiting 
factor in these kinds of big discussions about policy. We also see this with rare, rare disease drugs, Maureen, access to those, because that is, again, a very serious patchwork system across the country for folks. Oh, it certainly is. And, and as you mentioned, there are inequities. It's not straightforward. What are some of the inequities that people face? Well, in it's interesting coverage? because some of, yeah, and there, there are many, Maureen, absolutely. So sometimes people um, really struggle to uh, meet the deductible that they are required to meet in order to actually have their coverage kick in. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, and there are places in Canada, many places, in fact, they're not like BC. I know that you're, you're hosting the show um, based in BC. Um, BC has fair pharmacare, and so it is open to residents in BC to pay into that program. Uh, they can pay uh, the they can sorry they pay into it, and then there's a there's a deductible, which so they have to spend a certain amount of money before coverage will kick in. Um, and Alberta also has a similar program that residents can buy into. But that's it. So I live in Ontario. The CSPA is headquartered in Ontario. And there's no similar program like that here in, in Ontario. We have that for, for youth who are 25 and under if they don't have access to a private plan through their families. Um, then there's some coverage um, available. To them. They can access the provincial formulary. Um, and in Quebec, it's quite different too. So in Quebec, um, everybody in Quebec is required to have coverage. But unlike BC, unlike Alberta, uh, if you can't access private coverage, which is what you're, you're really supposed to, to sort of turn over every rock in order to access private coverage, then you are required to uh, pay into and be covered by the provincial plan. So everybody's set up really differently, even when you just think, Maureen, about those different kinds of rules about who gets to, to access coverage. And then when you start to look at the formularies themselves, which is the list of the drugs that that plan will cover, there's a lot of variation. Um, and there are all kinds of different um, policies around some of the newer drugs where you have to have, um, you have to meet a whole bunch of different criteria in order to have the, the, the plan covered. That's, that's the case for public plans and private plans in, in many instances. <laughs> and you know what? The existing system is so confusing, which is why I am so happy that you have developed this digital tool <laughs> called Is My Prescription Covered? Rachel Mannion, thank you so much, Executive Director of the Canadian Skin Patient Alliance. And where can people find this Is My Prescription Covered tool? They can find it on our website, www.canadianskin.ca. And I should mention that we also have it in French, and our website is a propos and uh, they'll also find it. You can. It doesn't matter where you are on our website. You'll find it in the top right-hand corner, and it will guide you through. We don't ask for your name. We don't ask for the drug you're looking for. We don't ask for where you live. Um, you just. It just flows you through the system to try and point you in the right direction. Thank you so much, Rachel. Appreciate having you on, and uh, this tool is going to help pleasure. so many people. You got questions, she's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for joining me this evening. You know, with the new year, lots of people make New Year's resolutions. They try to anyway. Lots of people decide to change their lives. You may have decided to change your life last year. Well, my next guest did 
just that. She decided to enter 2022 with nine months of sobriety. She is none other than Madeline Shaw. She's a social entrepreneur and the author of the book, The Greater Good. Good evening, Madeline. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Maureen, it's my absolute pleasure. Oh, that's so great. You know, congratulations on nine months of sobriety. That's wonderful. Oh, thanks, friend. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You are so welcome. What a tremendous accomplishment that is. And and also to share your story for others who might feel that alcohol is taking up too much mental real estate or or for whatever reason, they might be struggling um, sharing your story. You know, we, we empower others when we do that. So I'm very, very grateful to you. So tell me, Madeline, um, what made you decide to lead a sober life, if you will, put, put the wine in the past? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was so, so many things, but, um, alcohol just in so many ways was just kind of chipping away at me, I would say. And, you know, over the years, sort of my, my intake gradually, like very gradually increased, but what changed and what I really kind of, um, I noticed the most was it, it thinking about it, just thinking about drinking, it even rhymes, um, you know, the disproportionate amount of time and anxiety um, that I was thinking like, oh, how much wine is in the house? Or, oh, you know, is there is that bottle of wine going to be enough to go around the table in this restaurant? Or, you know, uh, just umpteen little or anticipating drinking, you know, if I'm driving home from work, going, oh, I'm really looking forward to having a glass of wine. It's like, it really, and then I started to worry about it. I'm like, am, do I have a drinking problem or do I not have a drinking problem? And this kind of yo-yo sort of anxiety. And then meanwhile, what really accelerated things was hitting menopause because every, so many things were changing about my body and my ability to handle alcohol, like just to process it just sort of went out the window and um, especially around the issue of sleep. So it was sort of, a combination of all of those things that just feeling like I really, really don't want to have this in my life anymore. But then I'm struggling. Like it went, I realized pretty quickly that, you know, having said that I was a take it or leave it kind of person who never left it, by the way, um, when I actually tried to quit, it was hard. And so that's how I knew that I had a problem because there was this kind of pushback. It was almost like I had an inner voice telling me uh, that I should drink. Interesting. You know, you mentioned alcohol taking up too much uh, real estate in your head. I've had patients who have suffered injuries as a result of drinking too much. Um, Also, the next day, they basically would lose a day or they wouldn't be as productive. And so they realized that alcohol was just taking up too much time. Um, in their life and they were losing, you know, effectively two or three days. You mentioned that you had some effects on sleep. Um, Oh my. When you say menopause struck and, um, you know, that the sleep is a big issue for women who are experiencing menopause, a natural transition. Uh, Let me just get that in there. Um, But, you know, sleep can also affect how you are the next day, but a headache or dry mouth or other issues that occur uh, can also affect a woman's or a person's life. Oh, yeah. I mean, just I cannot tell you, like Maureen, going from drinking a glass or two of wine a day to drinking nothing 
nine months later, like my energy is through the roof. Like I can't tell you, it made such a big difference. Like going from kind of, I'll call it a very low grade hungover state of just feeling a bit sluggish or a little kind of, you know, fuzzy around the edges or whatever, especially um, on nights where, like I said, with, with menopause setting in, where, you know, I'd probably wake up in the middle of the night because the, the alcohol disturbed my sleep and then go back to sleep for maybe an hour and then I'd be awake with hot flashes. So I was just in this kind of sleep-deprived, irritable, low-energy state um, and now not drinking. I sleep through the night every night. I feel amazing. I feel clear. Um, I don't have any of that sluggish kind of irritable edge to me anymore. I just feel calm and happy. Like it's really had a a powerful impact on my mental health as well. And, and, you know, alcohol is so socially acceptable and certain, certain you've experienced that. And, you know, people who drink want others to drink along with them. You know, it's party time anytime, basically. Uh, how much did that impact your life? I know you're out there. I've seen you at events before the pandemic. Um, you know, uh, did you feel this social pressure as well? Um, I would say yes. But at that point, like I was already so fully socialized to be a drinker. Like I've, I've consumed alcohol since I was you know, a teenager and, you know, it's part of my family, it's part of my friend group, it's it's part of any celebration, you know, any, it's just so normalized. And so I wouldn't say I felt pressure so much as just everybody was doing it. Like it was sort of maybe invisible social pressure or whatever, like the pressure threat sets in actually when you stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, you don't, you, why aren't you drinking? Are you okay? You know, are you sick? Um certainly not going to be pregnant at my age. Um, but there's kind of like you almost have to rationalize not drinking, whereas drinking is, is way more socially acceptable. And, you know, even finding something to drink if you're, if you're not drinking, um, although this is changing a lot, is harder. Like, you know, I was at a restaurant the other day and, and they just had like a Shirley Temple or, or, you know, Coke or whatever. And I'm like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Give me, at least I'll give me a a non-alcoholic beer. Like, come on. Um, But But there's lots more mocktails. Yeah. Lots more mocktails coming on the market. Lots of people are getting into it. I saw Blake Lively is, is getting into it um, because alcohol doesn't agree with her, she said, and and she likes to be festive and fun and and wants a, a festive and fun drink. There is also this culture, Madeline, about mommy um, the mommy wine and wine o'clock, um, you know, there is an association of uh, cancer, different types of cancers between alcohol and, and cancer. So cancers of the mouth, throat, larynx, liver, esophagus, colon, rectal, breast cancer, uh, pancreas, you know, all sorts of, and I don't think women realize that the risk is greater actually for women because of the uh, percentage of water in a woman's body. But what are your thoughts on this whole mommy drinking culture? In order to raise our kids, we need to be drunk, essentially. Yeah, I think it's awful and really, really, really harmful. And um, But also, I guess, you know, being a mom is hard, right? Like, I'd like to start there. Like, you know, when women are feeling exhausted, when they're feeling the burden of childcare, especially in the pandemic, 
um, and trying to earn a living and, you know, perhaps caring for aging parents and, and, and like the, the load is huge. So, you know, the segment of moms is, yeah, it really irritates me that they've been so targeted by the alcohol industry because basically what their consumption of alcohol is doing is depleting them of their vitality, their energy and their health, but not really like nobody's doing anything to help them. So I want to acknowledge that their pain is real and the fact that they're seeking kind of a break or kind of a little kick their heels back kind of thing with alcohol makes all the sense to me in the world. What is unconscionable is how the alcohol industry has just so brazenly done that. I mean, they even have the gall to have like market certain kinds of alcohol that give back, quote unquote, to breast cancer and stuff. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like alcohol causes breast cancer. Most women, most people don't know that it's um, as carcinogenic as it is. Like all the parts of the body that you just listed um, as the top sort of forms of cancer that are associated with alcohol. If you think about it, touch every part. If you take a swallow of alcohol as it travels through your body, that's the list that you just gave me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like from, from mouth to throat to stomach to, you know, whatever, all the rest of it. And the incidence of breast cancer, the correlation there is just stratospherically high. And yet the alcohol industry um, persistently seeks to hide that. Absolutely. Not to mention um, early onset dementia and Alzheimer's disease as well. You know, when when we fall asleep at night after a few glasses of wine, your CSF or cerebral spinal fluid is is bathed in um, the alcohol and that goes to your brain and that is a contributing factor to um, cognitive decline. Madeline, I'd like you to stay on the line. We're going to go to break. I want to talk to you about how difficult was it for you to stop drinking and if you needed any support during that time, like a a 12-step program, for example. I know there are varying degrees of alcohol use disorder um, from there to alcoholism, and there's many gradations on that. So I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that. My guest is Madeline Shaw. She is choosing sobriety, which more and more people are choosing that. Madeline is a social entrepreneur and the author of the book, The Greater Good. Thank you so much for being here this evening, Madeline. I really appreciate it. It's my absolute pleasure, Maureen. Now, you mentioned that um, nine months ago you decided to give up drinking, drinking alcohol. Mainly you were uh, drinking wine, and you said you've been drinking since you were a teenager. So for the listeners out there who might be considering this for themselves, they might have heard or might feel that alcohol is taking up too much mental real estate for them. They're losing productivity. They're not feeling that great. They might be entering perimenopause or menopause and, and alcohol is having a different effect on them. Um, how easy was it for you to give up alcohol and did you need to go to a support program? Yeah, um, giving up alcohol was not easy for me, not in all caps. Um, it was hard and, and just for context, so prior to the nine months, my quit date of April 14th, um, 2021, I had been trying for years. So I was having periods of intermittent sobriety. So I've, I've done dry January for, I don't, I don't know, probably four or five years now. I did a 100-day challenge in uh, 2020 um, as another sort of let's try this out and see how it goes um, kind of thing. I have read books like you wouldn't believe. Um, I have probably read a dozen books at least on the topic of um 
alcohol and addiction and sobriety and recovery. And, and that was immense to me and as well as joining online communities. So I do, it's funny, earlier today I attended a meeting of a group called The Luckiest Club uh, that is an online sobriety um, recovery support meeting that I love. And it's just been, it was pivotal to me actually in my recovery. Um, the first meeting I attended was on April the 14th. Um, 2021 and but I didn't know that was going to be my last day like I was kind of in one of my dithering like you know this week next week like kind of waiting for a sign and um and struggling and going back and forth and which you know there's the 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 mental real estate example that I shared earlier right like just the stress of it and the anxiety of it what am I doing this and what does this all mean um and I got to the meeting and I found that just being in the presence of other people in a very a way where there were no labels, there's no set kind of program, there's no religious component, there's no like anything like that. Um, I just loved it. It felt incredibly freeing. And um, for me, I would say a good half of my journey. It's like, yes, alcohol is the substance and, you know, I uh, have an addiction issue with it. And that's one thing. But the other thing is wrestling with feelings of shame mm-hmm. about that. And because shame is so, it's so limiting and it's so kind of devastating and it really actually prevents people, I believe, from sharing with others and for saying, hey, I, I, I need help or I'd like to share my story or I have questions even, right? Um, so being in the atmosphere of this meeting um, just kind of gave me permission to sort of bring all of my confusion and anxiety and anger and fear and just everything and it was all okay, it was like, yeah, it's okay. You're one of us and we're all here to get better together and figure it out. And we're just a bunch of human beings who sort of fell into a trap and we're helping each other to get out of that trap. And it was such a beautiful feeling. And there was a woman on the call. Her name was Hope. And I just, she was celebrating her, her one year of sobriety that day. And I just wanted to be her so badly. I just thought, and how wonderful that she was named Hope. Right. And so, you know, having that opportunity of having kind of a role model and seeing that it was possible and that other people were also struggling the way I was struggling and that, you know, just feeling a sense of connectedness and community um, was absolutely central to my recovery. And what was your shame related to? Was your shame related to having, you know, having to give it up or drinking or some things that may have oh, happened? Just the, yeah, the whole social construct around being a quote-unquote alcoholic in our culture. And I, I find the word alcoholic to be highly stigmatized. And, you know, with all due respect for people who, who claim it, you know, at the beginning of AA meetings, famously, people say, hey, I'm my, my name's so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody says, hi, so-and-so. And, and it's like, that's so great. Like, that one thing alone is just, like, take that, you know, shame. Um, but... For me, the word was problematic. Like, I didn't know how to speak about, I didn't want to feel ashamed. I, like, to me, it's almost like alcoholism, alcohol use disorder, as it's more correctly referred to as, is something that carries a lot of shame in our society. It's almost seen as a moral failing as opposed to an addiction issue. And so it was really that, that I had, you know, felt like I'd failed at at drinking, I quote, could not drink or wasn't drinking correctly or responsibly or whatever. Whereas in fact, you know, alcohol is a highly addictive substance and that I became addicted to, you know, duh. And, um, and 
needed help with dealing with that, just like anybody would need to help with dealing, you know, with any other personal issue. Absolutely. It is it's a medical a failing. Is what no, I would say. it's a medical yeah. condition. Absolutely. And, and giving it up allows you to embrace life in, in such a much better manner, I would imagine. And, and anyone else who is struggling with any substance use, um, or, or abuse, it can be shopping. It, you know, addiction comes in many forms. Unfortunately, the first one that comes to mind is alcohol and drugs. Um, but you know, work can be an addiction and shoes can be an addiction, chocolate, so, um, but you know, it's just, it's just wonderful that you've, um, reached this nine month mark and it's not too far down the road. How has your life, uh, changed, uh, quickly, if you don't mind some kind of high level, what, what is so much better about living a sober life, uh, than prior to that? Well, I got all that mental real estate back and which, you know, I've, I've written a book, um, I, I just, I feel better in every way. I sleep better. I have more energy. I'm calmer. I laugh more. I'm, I have more money. <laughs> you know, like there's nothing bad about it. Like everything about it. I just, I'm so glad that I've kind of got this monkey off my back. I feel more like myself. It's just the best way of putting it because this thing isn't kind of, like I said, chipping away at me, chipping away at my, you know, energy levels and I just feel more capable of dealing with my life and you know showing up as a parent as a daughter I you know I just I have a lot going on in my life and I just feel like I'm able to bring more of myself and more energy to all of it and it feels wonderful I feel free well you sound fantastic Madeline and I'm so happy for you. Congratulations and best of luck to you as you continue on this sobriety path and as, as people continue to make um, fancier and more festive mocktails <laughs> in the future. I think that's a growing industry. Um, so that's fantastic. And um, I really appreciate you coming on. And, and you've written an amazing book as well. And I just want to, for the listeners, where can uh, people purchase your book? Where can they find that book? Oh, thanks, Maureen. Yeah, the book is, um, yeah, it's called The Greater Good, Social Entrepreneurship for Everyday People Who Want to Change the World. It's a bit of a long title, but it gives you a better idea of what it's about. You can buy it pretty much anywhere online. You can buy it at Indigo. You can order it at your local bookstore. Um, you can ask for it at your local library. Uh, yeah, it's um, anywhere, even large companies <laughs> that I don't like to name where you can buy books are carrying it. And People can learn more at my website, and that's at greatergood.org. And that's wonderful. Madeline, thank you so much once again. I really appreciate it. We'll get you back when you're um, at the year, April 14th, (laughs) right around that time. I can't wait, Maureen. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. That's Madeline Shaw, author of the book, The Greater Good. She is a social entrepreneur. Joining me on the line to talk about this and also talk about how IBS is lighting up Canada in Periwinkle for the month of April is none other than the esteemed president and chief executive officer of the Gastrointestinal Society, Gail Atara. Good evening, Gail. How are you? Hey, Maureen. I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, so many people suffer with irritable bowel syndrome. Before we get to talking about the spotlight that has been placed on it for the month of April in the color periwinkle. Um, Can you tell the listeners what irritable bowel syndrome is or IBS is and what are some of the symptoms that people experience? 
So there's a really easy way to remember that. It's the ABCDs of IBS. It's a lot of letters, but it's the alphabet, so it's pretty simple. So we're talking about abdominal pain, bloating, constipation, and or diarrhea. And so what happens is you get a mix of some of these things. So your whole being is overwhelmed with what's going to happen to me next. Am I going to be constipated or will I have diarrhea? So that's the kind of gist of what IBS is. There are a few other little nuances in there that define it officially, but, but that's the gist of it. This sounds just horrible, to be honest with you. And, and when you think about that, and you know, and I often forget about the abdominal pain part and the and the bloating, I, I focus a little bit more on patients of mine who have constipation and diarrhea, um, which is mm-hmm. also dreadful. So how does this impact a person's quality of life, not just their daily living, their activities of daily living, but their jobs, their relationships, their intimacy, you know, how does that impact? And, and also, it's got to have an impact on mental health. Oh, yeah, for sure. We we have a lot of information about IBS on our website. It's badgut.org. Uh, and um, we did a survey just recently on poop anxiety. And we have the results there, and it tells about how people feel, about how anxious they are to, to poop, even in their own home sometimes. If they have a guest over, they're afraid of the smell. They're afraid of the... Of the uh, of the experience that they might be considered to be in the washroom too long, and that that brings anxiety. And overarching that too, people feel housebound. And you know, to a degree, during the pandemic, they were feeling, oh well, I'm not. They don't have to go anywhere. And and it was a bit of a re- reassurance that they were actually not going anywhere, because they, there's this bathroom anxiety. Can I get to a bathroom? And when I'm there, do I have? Um, do I am I going to embarrass myself? And, and this is something that. that the now, husbands it, don't there's have. There's a lot of mental health. Sorry? Husbands don't have bathroom or pooping anxiety. Is that right? Are they excluded from this? No. <laughs> um, very interesting. You know, what's interesting, there were a lot of men. There were a lot of men who responded to our survey. So I think that, Is that right? you know, and, and, and yes, and in fact, in, irritable bowel syndrome does affect slightly more women than men. But I think personally, I don't have this factual, but I think personally it's because women will report it, whereas men might not report it as much. And so, uh, you right. know, I, I think that's, that might be the case, but yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's just such a great mm-hmm. point. Um, I, and, and intimate relationships, how, how would it affect intimate relationships? Because, and, yeah. and that's probably tied to mental health or emotional health and, and really being focused on, on your bowels or pain. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're the expert on that, but, but I think, uh, you know, it does. It affects, it affects their intimate health. And, and uh, you know, are you willing to, if you're in the dating scene, you know, when do you tell somebody that, you know, by the way, I'm going to be focused on the bathroom today and not so much on you, you know, like this, these are really big deals because there's such a stigma around um, pooping. You know, everybody poops. And yet, and yet, there's such a stigma about talking about it, and and we really need to raise the awareness. And in fact, back in uh, 2003, I wrote a letter to the mayors all across uh, Canada to ask to, to focus on awareness. And so that's where the Awareness Month came, as April in 2003. And then finally, Health Canada uh, put it up on its uh, website about all the uh, you know awareness uh, days and months and year uh, year. And we, that's where we got irritable bowel syndrome recognized. So we're very pleased about that. And so we have it lit up all across the country in, um, in uh, like you said, in the periwinkle. It's beautiful color. And uh, from coast to coast, really, all the way in, um, oh, goodness, Nova Scotia. In Sydney, in Sydney, Nova Scotia, the giant fiddle at the port of Sydney is lit up, as well as the Vancouver Convention Center. So it's going to be a colorful month. 
And so this is actually what these uh, colored lights are all about is in, in the different cities across Canada. So it's all lit up in periwinkle and, and are people, are there, do they know this? Are you trying to raise awareness, associate this color and, and why this color? Is there any particular reason aside from it's my favorite color? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I do I'm love sure this. I love this it, yes. color. It's a beautiful color. Well, um, you know, uh, colors run out pretty quickly. And in 2003, we had to look through the colors that were still available because colors were mm-hmm. associated with other diseases and disorders. And that's a sad thing to think, too, that there are so many other conditions out there that need recognition. And we need to understand and be sensitive to these individuals who are going through all this. And um, one of the big things with irritable bowel syndrome is that it's quite common. In Canada, it could be as high as 20%. And and there Is are very few right? treatments. Yeah, and there are very few treatments. And the treatments that we do have for it, the public formularies don't cover it, which is a big challenge for me. It's a pet peeve of mine to get the, the you know the the government to cover the medication. But if you have a if you have a private plan, then you're in a better shape to get these medicines that are really working. And, and what does it take to get public coverage? Is it a politician having IBS? Because I'm sure there are at least you know, when you say 20%, there have to be politicians. There has to be politicians who have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. I'm sure. Is it that much of the population? I, I think it, it amounts to a few things is that there are some really serious diseases that exist that do get priority. Uh, not all of them that should get priority do. I, I work actively in that area. Uh, but I think that it's that it's trivialized. It's like, oh, it's only irritable bowel. It's not because irritable bowel isn't a disease that has an organic root. It's functional. So your gut isn't functioning right. And as a result, it tends to get a, like a lower um, recognition. For example, a lot of people know inflammatory bowel disease, and that is Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. That's completely different. But a lot of people kind of confuse it and assume that there's coverage for it because it's there. But I think it's just trivialized, and we are trying our best to, for people to recognize that, in fact, this is serious, even though it's a functional disease. It's still very serious, and it does trigger a lot of mental health issues and um, other things associated with it, a lot of anxiety, sleep disorders, fibromyalgia is really linked to it. So, that it, you know, it is, it is a real thing. It exists, and we need to help people who have it. It certainly is. And it's much like urinary incontinence, you know, it's a, it's a functional issue of sorts, you know, and it does impact a person's quality of life. Um, now are there some conservative measures, uh, that would be helpful for, to treat IBS? There are a lot of different diets that are good, um, that are tried, but nothing seems to work for everyone. And so the low FODMAP diet, we have lots of information about that on badgut.org. We have a 30-second IBS test that that someone can take if you just search for that on badgut to see if you might have it. Uh, And it's very quick. And we have a couple of videos on there. Uh, I think we have three videos right now about IBS. Two of them are animated, and then one is our uh, gastroenterologist talking about it during a a patient lecture. So so then there's lots of infographs and all those kinds of things we have on our website, as well as on all our social media platforms, especially throughout this month. But but diet, there are some diet things, you know, increasing your fiber. But, you know, the sad thing is that what works for one person doesn't work for the next person. And and that is just so frustrating. Now, um, getting back to the ABCDs of it all, abdominal pain, bloating, constipation, and diarrhea, does one have to have all four of those uh, symptoms to make a diagnosis? 
You, generally, you have to have, uh, according to the, the, the defining criteria, which is the Rome criteria, you have to have abdominal pain, bloating, and one of either constipation or diarrhea or a mixture. And so uh, about a third of the population has have diarrhea, of the IBS population. About a third have IBS-D, right. a third have IBS-C, and a third have mixed. And there is a new medication that okay. just came on the market, for example, last, uh, last month in Canada. Again, whether it's covered on public formulas or not, it's called Trulance, and it works. It mimics a hormone naturally found in the body, and that uh, helps relieve constipation. So, um, you know, there are some medications, but it seems that people do need to have some kind of treatment, uh, not just diet and exercise and relaxation and all these things might help, but really medication, unfortunately, is the, um, is the thing that most patients need. Right. And if people were listening earlier, um, we talked about, is my prescription covered? Um, a new digital tool to help people to find out if their medications are covered. So uh, check I out know, that's right. I know the person who started that. Yeah. I think that's great. It's absolutely fantastic yeah. app. I really recommend it. Yeah. It, yeah, it great. is fantastic and helpful for so many people. It's going to help so many people. Just as you help so many people, Gail, your work is incredible. You've been uh, in your role as president and chief executive officer for a little while now. Um, so let's just quickly review the IBS years, awareness. Is a little while. <laughs> How many? Sorry, 26 years. 26 years. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> Good for while. you. Congratulations. And here you are spotlighting IBS awareness month. And so um, the cities that uh, we're going to see the periwinkle lights illuminating the oh, skies they- are? Yes, so it's all, all across. So we have Grand Prairie, Alberta, Sydney, Nova Scotia, Calgary, Alberta, Lethbridge, Alberta, Vancouver, Toronto, Edmonton, uh, some more in Vancouver, and Niagara. And so Niagara Falls is going to light up on April 21st, and the Toronto sign on April 21st as well. So April 21st, there are, the, are quite a few of them, Edmonton, Vancouver, and well, BC Place and Vancouver Convention Center, both on April 21st. So, so that that's yeah, a good, good, good rundown so far, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Excellent awareness, badgut.org. It's a great website, probably one of my favorite names for a website. <laughs> um, very, very creative. Um, so when people, listeners see the periwinkle lights lit up across uh, the country in Vancouver, Toronto, Niagara, Ontario, Edmonton, you know, think of IBS and think of all those people who are suffering with this functional disorder and uh, and how frustrating that it can be for them. Gail, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight. And um, for more information, where would you suggest people go? Just to our website is the best thing, is badgut.org. And most most often your physician will have information from us as well. We have great pamphlets and other uh, video resources there. That is fantastic. And, of course, people can always make a donation to your society. Isn't that correct? (laughs) That's absolutely right. It's very easy to do it on our website. We appreciate that. And you can mail something to us. So we we are based in Vancouver, but we're a national registered charity. Fantastic. People, send in your money to me, and I'll give it over to you, (laughs) Gail. Anyway, thank you so much, much, Gail. I really appreciate your interest in this. It's it's very valuable. Oh, you're very welcome. And great work. Great work you do. Thank you. Really appreciate it on behalf of all those IBS sufferers out there. Gail Atara, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Gastrointestinal Society. 
www.badgot.org. Thanks, Gail, for coming on. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.